Um, all right, if you're in Slack, then I want to encourage you um, to be involved in the sermon right now. Um, I'm going to be asking questions, but I'm not just asking you to answer questions with me. I'm actually asking you to contribute, to ask your own questions. Um, I've already had great questions asked to me today, um, even during service. And, uh, and it's important that we have a space to ask our questions. I remember a, a preacher telling me years and years ago, I think it was in the 90s, and, and he said, one of the dangers that we have as church leaders is that we answer questions that nobody is asking. And it's like, well, great, that was an irrelevant service. I'm really glad that you answered that question, but I don't really care about that question. I had another burning question that I didn't get to ask because my expectation in church was that I just sit down and shut up and listen to whatever the pastor thought that I needed to know. Um, here, we have a platform to ask you questions. And so Slack is a place that we ask you questions. If I don't get to it in the actual message time, I can be responding afterwards. There are also people in the congregation. Engage in this discussion. Talk about it. Bring, bring scripture to light, to questions. Have, have discussions. And yes, God is at work in that. So let me actually just open up our service. We're in a seven signs of Jesus' Messiah. It's a study of the Gospel of John. And I am so excited about this, our third message in this sermon series. And, and as I'm just digging into the signs, these miracles that Jesus did, the more I'm just like, oh my gosh, that was so on purpose. Like it was so intentional what Jesus was doing. And it's attached to so many other elements of what God has been doing in all of the world. So let me pray. God, I just pray that we would be able to see you clearly. That we'd be able to see you, not just in Scripture, but that we, by your Holy Spirit, would be able to extrapolate the God of the past and know that you are the God of the present, that you are working right now by your Holy Spirit in the same consistent way that you have been working for thousands of years, that you are still doing the same thing today, that you're still at work today. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would um, open up our hearts and our minds, give us understanding, and help us know you in jesus name amen so as i mentioned this is the third sermon in this series and and the whole piece is that is is john is showing us that jesus is god jesus is god that's his whole thesis of the entire book and and that's what he's building out and so he is co trying to convince us that that Jesus is God incarnate. And so Jesus does what God does. That's the way you convince somebody. So if somebody walks up to you and says, I'm God, and you say, yeah, okay then. You need to go to the loony bin or whatever you want to, whatever. You're just, you're crazy. Um, we aren't going to accept that and so the claim of Jesus as God is actually pretty offensive. There's something like, whoa, you're claiming to be the creator of the universe. You're claiming to have always existed. You're, you're claiming a power that us humans, we don't have. And, and so there's a, there's a certain skepticism around, hey, is Jesus actually God? And so John is saying, Okay, I've walked with this guy. I know who he is. And so John isn't just picking out 
random things that Jesus did. It's not just like, oh, here's a random action that Jesus did. We started two weeks ago with the, with the uh, turning water to wine. John is connecting that example to the blessings of God. God promised to bless Israel. God promises to bless. And Jesus blesses with provision at the wedding. We, we then looked at, um, last week, we were, we were looking at the healing of the official son. And we see that God created with the word of his mouth. And Jesus healed with the word of his mouth. And so we're like, ah, I see the dots that you're connecting here, John. I see what you're doing here. So today, we are going to be reading John chapter 5, verse 1 to 17. And it is the story of, or it is the third sign of Jesus' divine person in human form. Now, while I am reading, I want you to contemplate and get distracted by this question. What do you think of John 5, verse 4? What do you think of John 5, verse 4? After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Verse 3, in these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man, verse, four, uh, verse 5, one man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw, saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one stepped before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, is this, um, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn. So as there was a crowd in the place, verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see that you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse happened to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the, told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. Verse 16, and this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing the things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Okay, so on the surface, it's just another healing story, right? <clears throat> Jesus did a lot of them. But it's not the case here. John is pointing out some important elements of who Jesus is and how we can know for sure that he is the Messiah. Um, I, I just want to—I want to ask a question again. What do you think of of John five four? Anybody? I, I got a lot of crickets here on on uh, on Slack. What did you think of John five four? Because uh, that's that's actually a, a problem. I'm going to give you a little bit of moments on it. 
Because there's something that's really important that, that's going on here that we need to actually grapple with and understand. It's actually a little bit of a sidebar from the message, but I think it's important enough that we teach it. So, um, <laughs> someone's like, where is it? What is going on? John 5, 4 is not in your Bible. And that's a little disconcerting, isn't it? You're just like, what? What is going on? Where's John 5, 4? John 5, 4 says, For an angel of the Lord went down into the pool at appointed seasons and stirred up the water. The first one to go in after the water was stirred was healed of his disease. What? 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 Why is that not in my Bible? Anybody have that? Show me your hand. Anybody have that in a, in a footnote or anything in your Bible? You got a little note somewhere? Are there people who their Bible has nothing in that? Like no recollection at all of John 5, 4? Yeah, so some people have it, right? And, and we're just like, what is going on here? Why is John 5, 4 not present? This is not the only invisible verse in your New Testament. Um... I just want to let you know that there's about, I think there's about seven of them in your New Testament that just, they're invisible verses. They exist in terms of the reference, but they don't exist in terms of, they're not in your normal text. They're footnoted. So I need to talk a minute about textual critics and accuracy of the Bible today. This is, this is a hard thing to, to, uh, for us to get our heads around, but it's an important thing for us as Christians to get our heads around because the world and the internet is full of accusations that prey on the minds of those who don't actually study the scripture and they go, oh, well, the Bible's useless. It's just made up and they just this and that and make all kinds of accusations. So we need to clarify some of that so that you know why it's like the way it is. So the transmission of the Bible is extremely important, um, and it's probably one of the most important jobs in human history. Think about that. If God is true, and if Jesus is the only way to salvation, making sure that we preach that message accurately with a foundational text that's not changing even though language and culture is changing, is extremely important because it is the salvation for all humanity. So there might be no, better, no more important job than this boring job of Bible transmission. It's, it's extremely important. So scholars take years and research goes deep and texts have been found. We dig in caves and, and archaeologists go and they discover, they discover new artifacts. And they're just like, oh my gosh, we've got this. This little, this little dirty piece of papyrus paper. Look, look, it's got some little bit of writing in it. And we find them in museums now. You can go to many different museums and find ancient papyrus of Greek or, or um, Hebrew or Aramaic texts. And you find all of these words written on really, really decaying old pieces of paper. And, and so this is, this is actually how we are getting the verification of our scriptures. 
So in the 1960s, uh, there was a cave that was discovered that, that had these old potted jars. And inside these potted jars were scrolls. Now, Bible transmission's been going on for a long time, and textual criticism's been happening for a long time. <clears throat> People were like... <clears throat> The, the argument was, oh, well, there's nothing, you know, the Bible's changed so much over the 2,000 years since Jesus was born that these scrolls, which are being dated back to probably around, I would say they're dated anywhere from 30 um, current era all the way to around 130 current era, these scrolls are probably going to be vastly different than what we have today. And what they actually discovered was these scrolls are strikingly similar to what we have today. And so textual criticism has been done very, very carefully for, for a couple thousand years now, ensuring that the text is translated and interpreted well. But as we dig up old artifacts, we discover that there are artifacts that aren't exactly the same. So you get one example of John uh, chapter 5, and it's like, oh, this piece of papyrus has all of these verses in, and this is the story it tells, and, and the papyrus doesn't have chapter and verses in. It's actually written in Greek, capital letters, no spaces, no punctuation. That's how it's written. It's... I don't know if you ever want to try to read something in English, capital letters, no, no spaces, um, no punctuation. That gets hard to read. But that's how it's written in Greek. And so it's written like that line after line after line. And, and we're looking at this. And we've got one piece of papyrus that's got this on it. And then we've got another piece of papyrus that has another verse on it. Another whole line, another piece of information. What do you do? What are you supposed to do when you've got one copy of Scripture that says this and another copy of Scripture that says this? What we've done is we have created the field of textual criticism. And this is why biblical readers and scholars and teachers actually can speak with authority because we're aware of this textual criticism. We know the rules of it. I'm going to share a couple of the rules of it. Then we're going to get actually into the message. In textual criticism, the assumption is that they are moving from a spoken tradition that's only shared orally into a written tradition tradition. So the first assumption is the oldest manuscript is the most accurate. We're going to say that, that and, we've, and we've made this decision based on accuracy of the text, less amount of transmissions and all this stuff. We go to the oldest transmission is the most accurate. And, and so we date, the, we date the papyrus. We look at the way the letters were written. We're like, okay, so this one is older. The second rule that we do, and this one actually surprised me, but it makes sense. The shortest is more accurate. Now, the reason that we actually have chosen to say the shortest is most accurate 
is because what we're putting in there is we're saying that we're saying that the scribes in their eagerness to expand the story and help people come to more understanding have knowledge of their own that they add into the text that they're like oh this is going to help you understand and what we see in this chapter right here is john 4 uh, 5 4 says for an angel of the lord went down to the pool and appointed the season seasons had stirred up the water and the first one to go in after the water was stirred was healed of a disease well that makes sense because in verse 7, which is in all of, the, all of the findings, verse 7 says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps in before me. So everyone agrees that the man has said something about the water being stirred up. The man's like, oh, the water gets stirred up, and I didn't get put in the pool. So the man has a narrative that everybody is agreeing with that something happened, that the water stirred up, and the expectation was that you're going to be healed when you're put in the pool. What is that narrative? So the speculation is that a scribe who knew of this tradition included it as an explaining of the text, said, okay, so here's the story. The tradition is an angel of the Lord went down went down into the pool at a point of seasons and stirred it up. And if you went in, you got healed. So the scribe is most likely adding to the original text saying, I have understanding of this. I know this oral tradition. I know what was going on. I'm going to put this in here so that the future readers can know the whole story. But because we don't want additions in our text, we actually have... have said, you know what, that's probably a scribal mark, like a commentary at the bottom of some of your Bibles, that's probably a scribal mark and not an actual written by the, the Apostle John. We're going to remove it and put it as a footnote. Does that help anybody understand just a little bit about how we get our Bible and how we're, and how we're seeking hard to preserve it as true and pure? The reason I do that is because we need to be able to trust the authority of Scripture. So I'm totally um, willing to, uh, to have a great discussion. There's already a great discussion going on. I'll touch in that discussion later. That's a good one about, uh, about the Gospel of Thomas. There's a lot to be said there, um, but that's a, that's a great one. Um, so let's, uh, let's go on with this sermon because we, there's a message in this. So great. That's wonderful that we learn a little bit about our Bible very good, but here's my question for the actual sermon. Have you ever felt like God's doing something for other people, but not you? Here's a message inside the sermon. Here's where it comes to hit home. That was nice cerebral stuff, but here's the question. Have you ever felt like God's doing something for other people, but not you? Um, now, we know that from the story in John 5. We know that this guy has been sitting there for years. This guy has witnessed people getting healed for years and he is stuck because nobody's helping him along 
Nobody's come along and help his poor situation. The Bible says it's 38 years. That's, that's five years, six years before Jesus was even born to this point. And so here he is sitting by the pool. The original Christmas happens. And he's waiting all of Jesus' life. One day, someone's going to help this guy into the pool, right? But no, other people just getting healed. He's not. He's stuck there. Just by one of the pillars. Guys, I can't move. Stuck. Have you ever felt like God's doing something for other people but not for you? I have nobody to put me in the pool, he said, when the water's stirred up. And when I'm going, another one steps down before me. You can hear the despair in his voice. Of course I want to be healed. Of course, but there's a reason. I've seen God pass me by so many times. The angel of the Lord comes and, and it didn't work for me. I've not had the opportunity because of the injustice of my situation. I'm being blocked by an injustice. I've been stopped physically and I can't attain to this healing. I can't get there. God keeps on passing me by. I wish I could be healed. That was, the, that was this man's response when Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The guy's like, duh. Of course I want to be healed, but there are so many reasons. But God shows up in this unexpected. God shows up in the unexpected. Jesus said to him, fine. Get up, your, uh, get up take up your bed and walk. See, you got to recognize that Jesus is a stranger to this man. Recognize that hope was lost for this man. The path to healing is established when you get in the pool, when the angel stirs the water. We have our ways of doing things, don't we? You got your ways of doing things. Read your Bible, pray every day. You'll grow, grow, grow. You're going to be successful. All your problems are going to fade away, and you're never going to have conflict. That's it, right? That's what works. Thank you. I appreciate that. We've got our ways of doing things, but then God shows up and does the unexpected. Proverbs 16, 25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The way that seemed right was to gather at the pool and wait for the angel. Clamor your way down, be healed. The ways that seem right to us is here's how we do church. This is the right way to do church. Yada, yada, yada. I'm a good Christian. Yay, let's go home. Right? This is the way it's done. So, have you ever felt like God's doing something for other people but not you? Someone says, I feel like in many ways we've all been sitting and waiting for Jesus to heal us. It just suggests that at some point we need to stop waiting and do something. An interesting perspective that, you know, maybe, maybe we should just do it. But when I put that onto the lame person, I don't think that, that guy, that was the option. Maybe for us, there sometimes isn't an option where we're actually stuck. We can't just fix ourselves like we would love to, but we can't. So we have this, we have this moment where we're like, yeah, many times I feel like, like, God is just passing me by. Someone says comparison is a, is a thief of joy. It's easy to think that God's doing something for others and not for yourself when you think about what you want to happen rather than what you need to happen. 
Good point. You know, God is, God is doing something. He is, he is showing up in the unexpected. So here's my next question. When has God broken your expectations? When has he actually broken in and changed your expectation? When did God do something that didn't fit the script? God, God's done some crazy stuff in my life. God gets, Jesus gets, and he, he gets to the person, he says, take up your bed and walk, and, and the guy gets up and, bear, and carries his bed in the general public on a Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. God is breaking an expectation here. You're not supposed to do that. When has God broken an expectation and then come, come through and be like, yeah, that was me? God is doing great work. <laughs> Someone said, when has God fit into my expectation, honestly? It's a powerful sign that Jesus is the Messiah. The prophet Jeremiah looked beyond the destruction of Israel and saw God's redemptive plan. God will do these things. Jeremiah 31, 7, 9 says, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. I will bring them from the north country. Gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame and the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they will return here. With weeping, they will come. With pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path. They will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Jeremiah said that God would do these things. Jesus does the things that God does. God will do these things. He will make his people walk by brooks of water. Jesus goes, there's a man that can't walk. There's water. I'm going to make you walk. Jesus is intentionally picking out situations from, from the prophet saying, look, this is who I am. God said that he would do this. I am doing it. Can you see it? Can you see that I am the Messiah? Can you see that I'm filling the Old Testament expectations here? Here's a lame man. I'm going to make him walk. He's by a pool of water. Oh, look, Jeremiah said, I will make them walk by the brooks of water in straight paths. They will not stumble. God is breaking expectations. He's breaking your expectations. See, those who know Scripture and know God was going to restore Israel, they see this healing and they go, indeed, this is the Messiah. The religious people who are holding on to the way we do things say, this is reason to persecute them. But the people who are looking for God say, oh, my God. Oh, my Lord, oh, my God. That's what they say when they say, Jesus is doing this. They see the connection that Jesus is making and say Jesus is truly God. Someone says, I'm often humbled by God, but I also still get surprised when God does things beyond my understanding because he is supernatural and it still feels so unexpected. So often I make a plan for how God will provide for us financially and nearly every time he changes the plan. Doesn't he? That's just too true, right? Too true. God surprises us when he walks on water. So, 
I'm going to conclude with this. Why, why did Jesus withdraw from the man who was healed? Finally, after 38 years, the man's finally healed. God breaks expectations. He comes. He gets in trouble for being healed. Come on. That's ridiculous. He gets in trouble for being healed. And then it says, Jesus wandered away from him. Why did Jesus withdraw? Have you ever felt like that? Like God did something good for you once, and now where is he? God, you helped me so much, and now I, where are you? I don't even understand you. Jesus withdrew. The man who had been healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him. In the temple. God does wonderful things around us all the time and we miss it. We take it for granted. We assume our blessing comes from other sources. We don't really know how we're experiencing blessing or provision or healing. We sometimes think it's coincidence like we talked about last week. We didn't know who it was because God had withdrawn. And consider this. In this world today, I'm going to make a powerful statement here. You're going to be uncomfortable with it for a second. In this world today, Jesus has withdrawn. He's literally ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Good things are happening alongside of bad things. And people who don't know who's doing the good things, they don't know who is actually still providing hope in this world. They can't see it because Jesus said, I go to the Father. And they can't make the connections. They see good and they see bad. They, the only thing they have is they think it's something that they did. This is the condition of the world. I have bad things. I must have done something bad. I've got good things in my life. I must have done something good. We're not seeing the true source of goodness is God. Because Jesus has withdrawn, but he's not withdrawn from all of us. Jesus promised that he would not leave us as orphans, but that he would give us his Holy Spirit. He didn't say that he's giving all, everybody, his Holy Spirit. He's actually saying, I give you my Holy Spirit. You have a privileged place because of your belief and your trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you can see the connections, but the world around you cannot see They can't see that God is still good. They can't see that he's the one who is giving all things good, that he is the author of good. They just think it's happenstance. And it is up to us to proclaim that indeed God is good. He is at work in my life, and he wants to be at work in your life. Will you put your faith in Jesus, the Messiah? We are called to proclaim a gospel that connects the dots for those who do not have eyes to see. They can't see. They do not know. They are blinded by the things of this world. And Jesus has ascended to the Father. But God is searching for them. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Come. To your neighbor, say this. Come. Come to church because there's a whole group of people that we know God and he meets with us. And as you walk in, Jesus will find you.
says Jesus found him in the temple. There he is. You. See the good that God's done in your life? Don't sin anymore lest something worse happens to you. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. You know, you could have put something nice there. Yeah, you know, you see the good that's happening in your life? Yeah, God's good. Yeah, let's give thanks to God. No, no, Jesus says, don't sin anymore so nothing worse happens to you, man. <laughs> you know, just like, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> right? The man's suffering was an outcome of the fall of his people. Our suffering is an outcome of evil, the fall of humanity. And God's promise of restoring Israel is, has to do with a repentant people. Don't go doing off your own, the, the same things that culture is doing. God has done work in your life. He has found you. He has located you. He is indwelling you by his spirit. Don't go off and do your own thing. Follow Jesus and invite other people to come and be found by Christ. Today, if you need to be found by Christ and you're here and you're sitting there going, I don't, I don't know this Christ. I don't know the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. There is a moment of change for you where the Holy Spirit can be found inside of you by you saying, I see this sign that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I will put my trust in him. When you do that, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit will, will dwell inside of you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he will set you on a path that don't go sinning anymore, lest something worse happens to you. And he will set you on that path, and he will join with you, and he will be with you forever. He will not leave you as orphans. And so today, if that's you, if you're a person that said, I've never really put my trust in Jesus before, I encourage you to take a look at this sign so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. God, I pray for this congregation Jesus, for those of us who already believe, I pray that you would empower our speech to allow people to connect the dots so that they can see that you are the Messiah. That's what the Gospel of John is doing here. It is showing us that you are the Messiah, that you are God. That's the whole reason. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would empower our thoughts and our minds and our words to help people make that connection that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified in this space. And for those of us who have not yet put our faith in you, our trust in you, our life-altering decision to follow you, Jesus, I pray that, that we would come to that place, that we would say, I will follow Jesus. I do believe that he is God, that he is the Messiah, and he is the hope for the world. I will follow him for the rest of my life. Jesus, I pray that we would come to that place of decision today, and I pray that you would be glorified in our life. God, I pray that we would keep our eyes on Jesus and live today so that nothing worse happens to us. <laughs> Jesus, that's such a strange phrase. But God, I trust you in it. And we trust you. Together as a community, we trust you. Bless us this week. Give us opportunities and wisdom to express your love to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.